Good morning, church. Well, I hope that you are excited. I'm excited um, because we are starting a new series this morning. And uh, so last week we wrapped up the book of Second Peter. If you missed that, you weren't here, you were on vacation, um, you played hooky. No, I'm just kidding. But uh, if you were not here, I'd encourage you to go back and, uh, and listen to that online because Chris did a great job of just wrapping up that whole book for us and really reminding us about the, the key principles and doctrines that Second Peter has to teach us, the ones that we've been uh, talking about, learning about over the past several weeks. Uh, so definitely go back and listen to that if you missed it. I think it'll be profitable for you. But uh, with that being said, like I, like I said, we're jumping into a new series, uh, a new book today, the book of Psalms. And this is going to be uh, kind of a mini-series. It's just going to be three weeks long. So if you were here last summer, we actually did something a little bit similar. We did a, a shorter series on the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. And like last summer, you're going to be able to, in this series, hear from uh, some of our other pastors, some lay leaders, as Chris enjoys some much-deserved rest. So uh, I'm looking forward to this, uh, this opportunity. Uh, unfortunately, you know, you're stuck with me this morning, but there's more to come. Uh, this is just the beginning of something great. So uh, hope that you guys are looking forward to this series. We've entitled it just very simply the introduction or an introduction to, excuse me, to the Psalms. Uh, Tim had a lot of other series ideas, mostly uh, word plays on the word psalms. They do not deserve stage attention. Um, they're too cheesy. But if you're intrigued, uh, I'm sure Tim would love to share those ideas with you. Uh, but we've, we've called this series an introduction to the psalms because if you're at all familiar with the book of psalms, you probably know it's got 150 chapters in the whole book. In terms of chapters, it is the longest book in the Bible. It's got the most chapters out of any book in all of Scripture. And so obviously, we're not going to be able to really thoroughly touch on all those chapters, all the content that the book of Psalms has to offer. So the goal for us over these next three weeks, the rest of July, is really just to give us a glimpse into the book of Psalms. And what I hope to start doing this morning and then kind of uh, the rest of us will build on for the coming weeks is really we want to just equip you and we want to give you a framework to better understand uh, the book of Psalms. And that's going to help you then uh, through the coming days and weeks and months to dig into and to dive deeper into this book. And so with that being said, let me encourage all of us, and I'm encouraging myself even uh, in this, but I want us to view these next few weeks as really an opportunity to learn more, to gain a better understanding of the Psalms. This is arguably one of the most familiar books in all of the Bible. I read a couple polls this past week uh, with a quick Google search that this is the most read book in all of the Bible, uh, according to uh, a few, you know, polls and research. And so I'm sure all of us are 
familiar with the book of Psalms, if you've ever done a sword drill in your life, if you know what a sword drill is, uh, hearkening back to my Awana days. But uh, a lot of times, you know, you'd probably use Psalms as the reference point. It's right in the middle of the, of, of the Bible. And so you stick your thumbs, you know, in the middle and you open it up and then you flip one way or the other, right, based on uh, what the book is being called out. So I'm sure all of us to some degree are somewhat familiar with the Psalms, but I want to encourage us that all of us still have much to learn about this book. It is an endless source of riches. We have not exhausted it, even though we may have read it, uh, we may be familiar with it, we may even have memorized several parts of it. And so throughout these three weeks, challenge yourself to truly take one more look at the book of Psalms and to see what it has to offer because it is such a rich and unique book in all of Scripture. So to help guide our walk through the Psalms, let me just quickly give you an overview of the book. I want to hit on three uh, kind of features of Psalms. So I want to I briefly talk about the literary genre, the structure, and then the movement of Psalms. So first is the literary genre. Psalms is what's known as wisdom literature. Uh, wisdom literature is meant to uh, kind of guide us, uh, help us live wisely in our everyday lives and situations. Uh, but underneath that umbrella, that larger genre, Psalms actually has subgenres. It's like the inception of books, okay? Dream within a dream. Um, so the, the sh- subgenres, depending on who you talk to, there, there could be dozens. There was one comment, commentary that I read this past week uh, that actually suggested you should just say there's 150 subgenres in Psalms because there's 150 chapters and they're all unique. Um, that person's insane. Don't listen to that person. That's, that's too much. But uh, most scholars would agree that there's at least four, okay? Most people would agree that these four subgenres exist in the book of Psalms. And those are Psalms of hymns or praise. Um, Depending on who you talk to, either of those words could be used interchangeably. So you have praise Psalms or hymn Psalms. Uh, You've got Psalms of lament. You've got Psalms of thanksgiving. And then you have Psalms of wisdom. And each of these types of psalms kind of serve a different purpose. They have a different motive. They have a different structure to them. And, uh, and they're meant to teach you sort of in different ways. And they're meant to kind of teach you different things even. So an easy way to think about each of these subgenres is that hymns are for when things are right. Lament is for when something is wrong. Thanksgiving is for when what was wrong is made right. We give thanks to God for that. And then wisdom is for when we want to be right or we want to live rightly in the world. So those are, those are the subgenres. Uh, under that, that bigger genre of wisdom literature, these are the four ones, at least over these next four weeks, that we'll maybe kind of hearken back to, we'll talk about, we'll bring up, uh, is uh, praise or hymns, lament, thanksgiving, and then wisdom. So that's literary genre. In terms of structure, though, the book of Psalms is also unique, not just that it has subgenres, 
but it doesn't just have one author. So that's a very unusual kind of thing for most books of the Bible. Typically, especially once you get into the New Testament, right, there is one author. A lot of times uh, the book can be named after that author or the person that the author is addressing. Uh, but Psalms is unique in that it actually has several authors, and it has one unnamed editor who's taking all of those authors, taking all of these chapters and these psalms that are being written, and they are organizing it. So you've probably read a, another book like this, maybe not a biblical book, but another book that would have lots of contributors, lots of different authors, but it's got one general editor, and that editor's job is to take all of that content and organize it effectively in order to really communicate one primary message or to prove one main sort of thesis, right? It's all kind of addressing one particular thing. And so that's actually what we see in the book of Psalms. We've got an editor who's organized this one larger collection actually into five different smaller books. And so I think no matter what your translation is, you probably actually, if you read through the book of Psalms, most translations, if not all, will actually identify each of these books for you. And so it'll say above that, that chapter that's starting off the book, you know, book one or book two or book three. So maybe you haven't noticed that before, but it's probably in your Bible. And so the way that these books are broken down is that book one covers chapters one through 41. Book two uh, covers chapters 42 through 72. Book three covers chapters 73 through 89. Book four is chapters 90 through 106. And then book five is 107 all the way to 150. And the way that the editor kind of arranges each of these books is that he's got a very particular structure. He's ending each book with a uh, doxology. It's a... Uh, 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 a hymn, basically, of praise, a word of praise. And a lot of times, in addition to that doxology, the doxology itself will end with either an amen or even a double amen, amen and amen, okay? So that's the way, even just looking through the Psalms, that's the way you can kind of start to distinguish, okay, that's the end of one book, we're going into the beginning of another book. The exception, though, to that rule that I just gave um, if you study literature very often, you know every rule has an exception. So this one kind of has an exception as well. But uh, the exception to that rule, to that structure, is actually the very last book because unlike books one through four, book five actually ends not in one doxology, it ends with five doxologies. So it uses chapters 146 through 150 as sort of this grand finale of doxologies. And that structure is important for us to understand because it's actually going to help bring clarity to this last feature I want to talk about, and that's the movement of the Psalms. What, what, is, what are the Psalms trying to kind of communicate? and How does it ebb and flow in order to really kind of prove its thesis? So overall, as we read through the Psalms collectively from start to finish, the Psalms move from a position of lament to a position of praise. So as you move from book one to book five, you're going to see actually the mood of 
the whole book, Psalms, actually shift from what seems to be kind of really a place of hopelessness. There's a lot of lament. There's a lot of things that are wrong, right? There's a lot of crying out to God, asking God, why is this happening? Why are you doing this? What is the purpose of this? Why am I experiencing this? And it's going to move slowly then to a position of hopefulness. And it's going to conclude in that movement, it's going to conclude in these final chapters, chapters 146 through 150, with this repeated phrase of praise the Lord, praise the Lord, praise the Lord over and over and over again. This is why a lot of scholars actually look at the book of Psalms and say maybe one of its intentions is actually to mirror the life of the Christian. Because no matter who we are, all of us begin our lives in a state of hopelessness. We begin in this state of death in our sin. And even after we belong to Christ, even after that sin is forgiven, the Bible still guarantees us as Christians, we will experience suffering. We will experience trials. We will experience tribulation. But that isn't where our story ends. That is not the final chapter of the Christian life. Our future is experiencing victory over all of those things through Jesus. And so in what we could call the final chapter of the Christian life, that final sort of movement in this grand redemptive plan that God has is actually us joining the psalmist in saying, praise the Lord. Praise God, you have consummated all things. You have officially, finally, fully defeated sin and death. It does not exist anymore. And so we praise you. That is the movement of Psalms. And so this is a very practical book for us. All 150 chapters we can look at it and, and find even ourselves, wherever we may find ourselves in the moment, we can find ourselves in the Psalms. And it's meant ultimately to take us from a place of hopelessness to a place of hopefulness as together we praise the Lord. So with that in mind then, if you haven't already, go ahead and turn to, uh, to Psalm 1. This is the psalm. Psalm 1, it turns out, is a great place to start uh, when you're looking at the psalms. And so that's where, that was a joke, everyone. Okay. Um, obviously, that's the best place to start. So um, we're going to look at Psalm 1 today. And as we do, let me just, uh, let me pray, and then we will dive into to Scripture. Lord, we, we thank you so much that you have revealed yourself in the Word of God that you have given us instruction, you have given us wisdom, that we may live by it, that we may find you in it, that your plan would be revealed to us. And as we read it, that we would actually find our way toward you, that we would enter into relationship with you, that we would be saved through your grace through your forgiveness that's available in Jesus Christ. We thank you for this. We praise you for it. 
It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. Well, I want to I start this morning with a question uh, that we can all consider together. What are you willing to do in order to gain happiness? What are you willing to do in order to gain happiness? Maybe a more pointed question, a more pointed version of that question at least, is as you look back at your life, all the things that you've already done, what have you done in order to gain happiness? What have you What steps have you already taken so that you would have a happy life? Of course, Thomas Jefferson uh, believed that the pursuit of happiness was so foundational to the human experience, he was sure to include it in uh, the Declaration of Independence. And uh, if history and psychology and sociology tell us anything as we consider kind of these, these areas of study, it's that we are willing to go to great lengths, even make life-changing decisions at times, all in the name of happiness, all in the pursuit of happiness. We uh, quit our jobs or we make career path changes because we want to be more happy. We pick up our families and move because we, we think that maybe somewhere else we'll find happiness. We're not finding it here. Let's go somewhere else. Maybe we'll find it. We get married or we get divorced or we get remarried because we believe that maybe if we just live with the right person, they will make us happy. We throw ourselves into addictive behaviors at times or destructive habits because we think that in those things, maybe we will finally gain happiness. We overwhelm ourselves with, uh, with debt. We buy things that we can't afford because we think maybe if we're surrounded with enough things, if we enjoy the right things, then maybe those things will make us happy. We create false personas online. We actually create this false image of ourselves so that we can gain more followers. We can be more influential because the more people that see us, the more people that follow us, that that appreciate us, that recognize us, that look up to us, maybe that recognition will make us happy. And after we've done all of those things and we've spent our lives kind of looking for happiness, if we haven't found it, there are times even when we ask ourselves, Is this life actually even worth living? If I cannot be happy, if I cannot find happiness, then do I even want to exist at all? Happiness is inseparable from what it means to be human. It's something we all desperately want. We are willing to go to great lengths in order to find it. And so the question that we're all going to ask ourselves at some point in our lives, and I would guess that most of us have probably already asked this question of ourselves, is how do I experience real happiness? That's the question that Psalm 1 is actually going to answer for us this morning because that word blessed or blessed, that very first word of Psalm 1 actually means happy or happiness. And so this psalm is going to present us with 
the happy or the blessed man. And in presenting that man, kind of that figurative person, someone's going to teach us what it actually looks like to be happy. It's going to teach us how we actually find, how we experience happiness in our human existence. In fact, there are three questions that I want us to ask of Psalm 1 as we walk through it this morning, and we're going to kind of work our way backwards, actually, to answer each of these questions. Um, but, but Psalm 1 is a wisdom psalm, and so going back to kind of our simple definition that I gave earlier, uh, not only is this psalm going to tell us specifically how to gain happiness, but more generally, it's going to tell us how to live rightly, how to live wisely in the world. And so, spoiler alert, those two things are connected, okay? So, uh, how to gain happiness and how to live rightly in the world, the Psalms, and Psalm 1 specifically, is going to show us those things are intricately connected to one another. You cannot do one without the other. If you want to be blessed, if you want to be happy, then it's going to mean that you actually live wisely, you heed God's instruction in your life. And so the first question I want to look at this morning, before we get to that, that big question of how do we experience happiness, the first question is, what does it mean to be without happiness? Or what does it mean to be without blessing in this life? What does that look like? Asking that question, starting with that question, is actually going to help us answer then the second question, which is, what does it mean to have happiness, right? So uh, the psalmist is kind of comparing two different kinds of people, both figurative, but the first half of the psalm is going to be teaching on that blessed, that happy person. Here's what that person looks like. Here's what that person does. The whole second half of the psalm, though, Psalm 1, verses 4 through 6, is going to be presenting a different kind of man, the one who is wicked, the one who is cursed, the one who is unhappy, the one who is without happiness. And to describe what it looks like to be without happiness, the psalmist uses this image of chaff in the wind. This is an image that uh, we find in a lot of different places throughout Scripture. Um, if you don't know what chaff is, it's, uh, it's the, basically the husk or kind of the protective film that is uh, grown up around a seed. And so for things like uh, oats or rice or wheat, these are all seeds that we eat. In order to get to the edible part, which is the seed, that process includes actually removing the chaff, which is inedible or at least not very enjoyable to eat. It's not really nutritional uh, at all. And so that in the psalmist's mind is what it looks like to be without happiness. And there are a couple conclusions that we can draw from that image then of saying that unhappy man, the one that w that's without happiness, is like chaff in the wind. A couple conclusions we can make. First, to be without happiness is to be without purpose at least as it relates to God's kind of grand plan in the universe, God's grand plan in history. This kind of person who is without happiness, who is wicked, he stands opposed to God. God's will is not his will. He does not submit to God as his authority. 
And because that is true, the psalmist says, that kind of person who is wicked, who is without happiness, who does not have blessing, is useless to God in the same way that the chaff is useless to the farmer who's trying to get to that edible seed in the plant, who's trying to harvest his crops and produce something that is good and that is profitable. So this doesn't necessarily mean that people uh, who are opposed to God are literally useless in the full sense of the word. Uh, I think we know a lot of people who it seems pretty clear they are opposed to God. They are not living in obedience to God's instruction. And yet those people invent things, they build things, they succeed at things, they make our lives more enjoyable. They are effective leaders in the world. But in the grand narrative of God's story, they lack any kind of what I would just describe as eternal substance. There's nothing in which they're rooted. There's nothing that's anchoring them in this life. And so they're not going to endure or be protected from the wind that's going to inevitably sweep through their lives. Because they've made themselves enemies of God, the psalmist is saying there's no greater purpose that they share in. There's no final victory that they are going to be able to claim because they have spent their lives opposed to God going down this path of wickedness or this way of unrighteousness. And so as it relates to God's grand plan of redemption, they will not play a role. They will not share in the victory that God is going to bring one day. And that leads really to the second conclusion we can make about this kind of person, this unhappy person, based on uh, this image of chaff in the wind, and that is to be without happiness is to be without hope. So it's not just that an unhappy person or the person without happiness has no purpose in God's plan, but really even more significant than that, this person does not have hope. Verses 5 and 6 build on uh, this image in verse 4. It says that because the wicked are like chaff, they won't be able to stand in the day of judgment and the result of their choices, the way that they have lived, will lead to destruction. The actual word that the Psalms use is they will perish. So on one end of Psalm 1, you have blessing. You have a blessed man. On the exact opposite end, though, you have a man that is perishing. Those are the two kinds of uh, people, the two kinds of examples that we're presented with. In other words, the kind of happiness that Psalm 1 is discussing is one that is ultimately bound to eternity. It's not that the person who's obedient to God never experiences any kind of sadness. It's not that the person who is disobedient, who opposes God, never experiences any kind of happiness. But the kind of happiness that the wicked person will experience is not an enduring, it's not a permanent happiness. 
It's not going to exist in eternity. Because whatever pleasure that person will encounter in this life, whatever joy they may experience on the other side of this life, on the other side of their existence, is everlasting hopelessness. They will be eternally separated from God. So that answers our first question. What does it mean to be without happiness? Well, the psalmist says, using this, this image in verse uh, verse 4, that to, to be without happiness is really ultimately to be without purpose and to be without hope in this life. The second question, though, that we should ask of Psalm 1 is, what does it mean to have happiness, right? If we know what it means to be without happiness, on the flip side of that, surely there, there has to be an experience then of happiness. What does that look like? And so to answer this question, the psalmist turns to another illustration, another image in verse 3, this time of a tree. And he says that the blessed man or the happy man is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaves does not, or its leaf, excuse me, does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. So just like the image of the chaff was meant to kind of show us something about what does it mean to be without happiness, this image then of a tree is really meant to, to show us the opposite side of things. What does it mean? What does it look like to have happiness? And there are three characteristics described in verse 3 as it relates to the happy person. The happy person is fruitful, they endure, and they prosper. They have fruitfulness, they have endurance, they have prosperity. So first, to have Happiness is to have fruitfulness. The happy person is going to be someone who yields or produces fruit. I'm sure most of us are uh, familiar with this, this kind of metaphor. It's a very classic kind of image that the Bible uses in several key parts in order to communicate um, faith or in order to communicate Christian maturity. So uh, Jesus uses this language of bearing fruit or producing fruit in his parable of the sower, where you have seeds scattered, right? And, and some seed produces things and some doesn't, right? Some lands in soil, uh, some is consumed by weeds, some land on the rocks and, and do not grow. Uh, Paul uses fruit in order to describe the work of the Spirit in the Christian in Galatians 5. This is what we call the fruit of the Spirit. And so he's, he's getting at this idea of uh, something is produced in us, something grows in us if we are truly walking in the Spirit. If the Spirit abides in us, then something's going to be produced from that. And so all of these images in Psalms, in, in uh, the parable of the sower, in uh, Galatians 5, all of these are getting at the same idea, and that is God's power is too great for it to have no effect in your lives. If God is truly present, if God is truly working, if you have truly encountered His power in your life, something is going to happen. 
Something is going to be produced. There will be fruitfulness from that encounter. He does not leave people unchanged. If we are faithful to God, he is faithful to us and will make us useful and fruitful. To use this language that the psalmist uses, he will plant us in the soil of his provision. He will put us next to streams of life-giving water so that we can actually be productive, so that fruit will exist in our lives. And in our spiritual fruitfulness, in that production, we will have the ability then to nourish those around us by the same power that's been producing fruit in us. And so this happiness that Psalm 1 is describing here is ultimately an outward-facing happiness. It is an outward-facing blessedness. It's not ultimately meant to bless ourselves. It's meant to actually produce fruit within us, that the Spirit works within us, and there is an outpouring of that work uh, through fruitfulness that then feeds and nourishes and provides for other people. Second, though, to have happiness is not just to have fruitfulness, it's to also have endurance. Or as the psalmist says, to have leaves that never wither. So unlike the chaff that we saw in verse 4, the tree in verse 3 is not affected by the environment it's in. Its health is not ultimately dependent on what's going on directly around it. Because the same soil that produced the fruit of that tree is also the soil that's also going to allow that tree to be nourished continually. It's going to be fed continually. It's going to dig deeper roots into that rich soil so that it can be nourished, so that it can have endurance, so that it can exist in whatever kind of environment or whatever kind of season it may find itself. In other words, the kind of happiness that's being described here isn't ultimately dependent on any kind of circumstances. It doesn't come and go depending on what season of life it's in. It doesn't need a bigger house or a newer car. It doesn't ebb and flow with the stock market or the political landscape. The happiness of Psalm 1 is a happiness that is given by and sustained by God. And friends, there is no other source of happiness that can truly make that claim. There is no other area in our lives that can produce the kind of blessedness, that can produce the kind of happiness that is being promised here in Psalm 1 apart from God. Every other source of happiness is going to come and go. It is going to be like the chaff in the wind that when something happens, that when the environment changes, when the circumstances flip and do a 180, that chaff is blowing away in the wind, and just like it's blowing away, so is that happiness. 
It is only the happiness of God, the blessing of God, that is actually going to allow an endurance in our lives that is not dependent on our circumstances. So to have happiness is to have fruitfulness, it's to have endurance, and then third and finally, it's to have prosperity. Now, as I, as I say that word, there may be some of you that kind of have like red flags going up in your mind because of things like the prosperity gospel, right? And, and so we can uh, sometimes be hesitant, rightly, uh, to, to use a word like that, to uh, speak about prosperity as though it's something that uh, God promises, you know, as though God promises that the Christian life is nothing but comfort, uh, as though it's nothing but success and, and you know, and, and victory and everything like that. And so I, I want to be clear what I mean and what really the psalmist means when he's talking about prosperity. So I don't think this means that those who are blessed by God those who are happy in God will only encounter wealth and comfort in this life. In fact, there's several psalms that would speak against that idea. So Psalm 34, 19 tells us it's actually the righteous that experience affliction, that experience hardship. Psalm 73, 3 says, uh, it's, uh, I believe, a psalm of David. And he's talking about how there are wicked people that he sees prospering. And so the Psalms itself would actually go against this idea of prosperity means this kind of continued trajectory of pure bliss. No hardship, only comfort, no poor, only rich, right? It's, it's not what, uh, what Psalm 1 is claiming here. So to rightly understand what what this prosperity means, I think we need to have a more eternal perspective on its fulfillment. What does it mean to be prosperous? Well, to really understand that, we need to have an eternal perspective. Those who are blessed, those who are happy, are used by God in order to accomplish His eternal purposes. And so whatever whatever that, that person finds themselves doing, whatever circumstances they find themselves in, they can confidently say that in the Lord, their labor is not in vain. It will produce fruitfulness. It will endure. It will prosper and be used by God in order to accomplish His greater purposes in the world. It's the exact opposite experience of the wicked person that we see in verses 4 through 6, who has no eternal purpose. They have no eternal hope, and therefore they have no true or lasting prosperity. What they do is not going to seek eternal um, benefit. It's not going to uh, seek eternal fruit. Success, eternal success, is the unique promise given only to those who follow God and are in relationship with Him. So, to have happiness is to have fruitfulness, is to have endurance, is to have prosperity. But the question that we have not actually answered yet, 
that I hope we're all eager uh, to answer, they're all eager to ask, is this big question, how do we experience happiness? How do we get a hold of the kind of happiness that Psalm 1 is describing, the one that is productive, the one that doesn't fade, the one that promises eternal success and victory? That's the kind of promise that I want to have, right? That's the kind of promise that I'm sure you want to have. And the answer to that question is found in verse 2. It's by delighting in and meditating on the law or the instruction of the Lord. As I was thinking about what it means to delight in something this past week, this, uh, the, the word genuine popped into my mind. I think that's a really good uh, complementary word in terms of delight because to be delighted in something, to think that something is delightful, you can't really fake that emotion. If you delight in something, it means that you, you genuinely enjoy it. You seek it out. When people look at you, they can probably see that you're, you're delighting. You're experiencing delight in that moment, whether it's a hobby, it's, it's a person, it's a, a, a place that you like to go to. Delight is this kind of very authentic, very genuine, very real sort of emotion that oozes out of us. So other people will probably know about it when we delight in something. To meditate on something, though, kind of the other uh, part of this equation, is a little different than delighting in that it means to take something in, to absorb it. Uh, You're really going to ponder something or, or reflect on something if you're meditating on it. And so when you put both of these two words together, delighting in and meditating on, both of them together do a great job of really describing the Christian life as a whole. On the one hand, we enjoy and desire to obey God's instruction because he's proven his faithfulness to us. This is something that um, we, we sang about in that, in that last song, about this God being the same. So as we approach God's instruction, God's word, we encounter this God who is faithful. He's shown his faithfulness across all generations, and we see these promises even that he's given to us, that one day they will be fulfilled, and his faithfulness will be proven once again. And so we delight in his word. We delight in reading about his faithfulness and being reminded of it over and over and over again. On the other side, though, we see this idea of meditating on it. We we desire to uh, really absorb it, to reflect on it, to, to ponder it. It is, it is something that we want to feast on because when we do that, when we feast on the word, we start to encounter this God who has revealed his plan to save a people unto himself. We see his grace and his forgiveness that's been made available through the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. We start to better comprehend just how guilty we are, just how separated we are from God who's perfect and holy, and yet how available he's made himself to us by offering us Christ's righteousness so that we'd be united to him, that we'd be in relationship 
with him. In fact, that's really what it means to be blessed. It's, it's the same word that Jesus uses in the Beatitudes at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew uh, chapter 5. He's describing those who are truly a part of God's kingdom, and he describes them as being blessed. And so to be blessed by God is to be in covenant relationship with God. And that relationship is only possible in Jesus. That's what Psalm 1 is ultimately getting at. If you want to be blessed, if you want to be happy, then don't make happiness your goal. Happiness is the byproduct of Psalm 1, not the product. It's not the end goal. Make Christ your goal and happiness will follow. Fruitfulness, endurance, prosperity will follow and it will even continue to grow and mature in you as you continue to delight in and meditate on God's instruction. Now, there are some of you this morning who may actually be discouraged to hear that conclusion because you would say, I do not meditate on and I do not delight in God's word. It's, it's too hard for me to understand. There are some parts that I think are just flat out boring. I don't have the time to invest in order to really delight in and meditate on God's word. Whatever your reason is that you are anxious when it comes to this idea of meditating on and delighting in God's word, whatever your reason is, I just want to encourage you that the Psalms are here to help with that. In fact, pretty much every scholar agrees that Psalm 1, the chapter that we just looked at, serves as the introduction to the whole book. Psalm 1 is trying to tell us what the purpose of all the Psalms are, and it's to present God's instruction to the reader in such a way that we can delight in it and meditate on it. It's going to teach us how to praise God when things are right. It's going to teach us how to lament when things are wrong. It's going to teach us how to give thanks when those things that were wrong are made right. And it's going to teach us how to live wisely so that we can be right in the world. And so my prayer for us in these, in these three weeks, in the rest of July is that the Psalms would truly become so beneficial to us, that we'd fall more and more in love with God's instruction as we meditate on, as we delight in the Psalms. And as we do that, I pray that it would truly, truly be a blessing to us. Let me pray. Lord, we thank you so much that you have given us your instruction and that in it we find your grand plan for the universe, that you are calling a people unto yourself, that you've made yourself available to us. You are not a distant God, but you are a God who is present, who is near, who seeks to enter into a covenant relationship with us through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And so as we look through the Psalms, Lord, I pray that we would 
fall more and more in love with that truth, that we would delight in it, that we would meditate on it, and that, Lord, as we do that, as we delight in and meditate on your instruction, that we would come to be blessed people who live under your covenant in Jesus. It's in your son's name that I pray. Amen.